want you to think for just a second with me. Uh, if you had the opportunity, let's say uh, someone comes to you and asks you to write, let's say, an editorial, uh, maybe bigger than that, like one of the biggest, uh, today it almost seems like information comes through uh, podcasts now, but let's say the biggest, most listened to podcast says we want to give you time to express how you feel about what's going on in the world. And the question is this, what is wrong with the world? We want you to tell us what's wrong with the world What's the problem? You can talk about whatever you want, however you want to articulate and say that, right? You can hit on power or corruption or greed or poverty. You can talk about wars in the world. You can talk about what's happening in different ways. And you can just tell kind of the world what's wrong with the world. Now, I want you to just think for a second what you would say. If you had that platform and they wanted to hear from you, how would you explain what's wrong with the world? And I want you just to think about that for a second. Um, that idea came to me just thinking through this text this week, but also a podcast that I happen to be listening to this week. I was listening to a podcast with a gentleman interviewing a guy named David Brooks. David Brooks, if you don't know who he is, he's written a lot of books. Uh, he's written for a bunch of different publications through the years. He's a commentator, but he's also, uh, he's kind of like a conservative political commentator, but he's also a Christian. And he's been very outspoken about his faith. He's a very thoughtful guy. I, I, I listened to the podcast because I knew his name and I've always found him to be pretty representative of a biblical worldview, of a Christian view. And he speaks with, uh, with clarity, but with compassion. And so I like, I like hearing what he has to say. And so I listened to this podcast and the question to him was what's wrong with the evangelical church in America? That was the question they gave him. What's wrong with the, the church in America today, evangelical in particular, when we say evangelical, just so uh, defining terms here, what they were meaning in this podcast and what they were talking about is the idea of what it's historically meant is an evangelical Christian is someone who is a Protestant Christian who believes in salvation by grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, what we would say here all the time in our church. We say that almost every week, but also a very high view of God's word, right? Uh, even that term got kind of launched partly by standing behind that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. And so we would claim to those things. We, we subscribe to that here as a church. And so in that definition, we'd be in agreement on it. But as he started to talk about some of the issues, if we're going to define what it looks like in the evangelical church, he started to say, well, first of all, you have to start with this idea that people who call themselves an evangelical Christian today mean something very different than what the term used to mean. And he threw out this stat that was just mind-blowing to me. Maybe it won't be to you, but that of those that claim to be evangelical Christian, 40 have no affiliation, 40% have no affiliation with the local church. And so what he went on to say is what they mean by that term has become largely political and it has really nothing to do with what it historically meant. And so he started to unpack some of that and what that means. And he said, I think the heart of the problem now becomes uh, a tribalism that leads to rampant judgment. And that was the way he's kind of putting this together. And so I want to quote him. I want you to hear what he says. He says, it's now understanding nowhere and judgment everywhere. And that's a very punishing way to live. He says, out of all the kinds of loneliness, moral loneliness is the most lonely. And so if you feel you're morally alone you don't have, and you don't have a deep sense of meaning, you will flock to whatever gives you that sense of meaning. He says, what happens is we flock to that in a lot of ways politically and in different groups. And this tribalism has been born and it's kind of political in nature. And the way in which it's being, it's operating in our culture is judgment everywhere, right? And so then he goes on to summarize this way. He says, the line is no longer of good and evil, that it runs 
between, uh, in my own heart, but it runs between groups. And this has led to this extreme judgment. The problem of the world is those people. And so we get into tribalism, into groups. Those people are wrong and they have it wrong and it's their fault. And I'm going to continue to say that. And what has happened is those that claim to be evangelical Christians, 40% or more have latched onto that kind of thinking. And that's partly the way the church is being represented today. And I was thinking about how sad that is in light of everything that Jesus says and calls us to and what we're going to look at today. Because the heart condition that's underneath that, this tribalism that says it's all their fault, it's all them, we're good and they're evil, we're in, they're out. When we start to think that way, the heart condition that leads to that is nothing new. And as we read our text today, and I think we understand it in context, Jesus takes direct aim at that kind of thinking. And it is so deeply ingrained in us in our sinfulness that when he does, when he takes aim in this way, as he does, as he goes into the synagogue, they want to kill him. Literally, they seek to run him out of town and throw him off a cliff and kill him by what he says. And so this is a pretty important thing as we look at Jesus's words. And so if you're with us today and maybe you haven't been here all the way through our series, what we're doing in this series is we're just following Jesus's life chronologically. We're kind of jumping between the different gospels because we're doing it in chronological order. So the last few weeks we've been in John. Today, we're now in Luke's gospel. Uh, what we've looked at is Jesus has called disciples to himself. He was baptized. We see his temptation. We see him go down to Jerusalem where he cleanses the temple, kind of creates a stir there. He has a conversation with one of the religious leaders, Nicodemus, leaves Jerusalem to head back to his hometown in Nazareth around the area of Galilee. Uh, I've been saying just for reference that um, Jerusalem is like downtown Atlanta to the center of Dahlonega would be Nazareth. They're about 65 miles apart. And so it gives you just kind of a in your head where they're walking and where they're going. And so Jesus leaves Jerusalem and he travels back up to his hometown. He goes through Samaria where he meets the woman at the well that we looked at last week, spends time with the Samaritans, sharing the good news with them. But then he arrives back in kind of his hometown, his turf where he grew up. And he's going around and he's preaching and teaching and miracles are starting to take place and he's doing things and his fame is beginning to spread. And he goes back to Nazareth to the synagogue in which he grows up, grew up in. And it tells us that right at the beginning of the text. And as he goes in, he's going to stand up and preach. And as he finishes, they're ready to kill him. And that's what happens. Jesus goes in, says very little, and then everybody's ready to kill him. And so the way I want us to look at this text is first, what does he say? Secondly, why is it so offensive? But then lastly, what do we take away from it? How does it pertain to us today? How does what we take away from it, if we really understand what Jesus says, kill this idea of understanding nowhere and judgment everywhere? And so I want us to look at that together. So let's start with what does he say? Look with me in verse 16 as he goes into the synagogue. It says he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And so think, this is Jesus, this is where he grew up. He's been there, he's been in the synagogue his, his whole life. And these are people that know him, that have grown up around him, watched him grow up. And it says, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him to read. And he unrolled, unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives 
and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so Jesus goes in and he opens Isaiah and he reads this messianic psalm about what's to come and how God is going to set things right. And he reads it and he finishes and he sits down and he goes, this is all about me. He sits down. Now just background. He sits down because in a synagogue, people would stand and the teacher would sit down. We, we do it the opposite. No, we're, we're not biblical. I should be sitting and you should all be standing. No, I'm just... But he sits down and that's the way they did it there, right? They would sit and now he's going to expound to us. And Jesus gives like the shortest sermon ever. Hey, what you just heard, it's all about me. It's been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm now here to proclaim these things. And so Jesus is essentially equating himself to the Messiah. But I want you to think about this. We've talked about this a little bit through this series, but it's really important background to understand their reaction and what's happening here and kind of what unfolds. But remember, their expectation of the Messiah is he's going to come and lead this great revolt. He's going to overthrow the government. He's going to lead them out of the oppression of the Roman Empire if, if he comes at this time. Right? Remember, they're, they're in an occupied land by the Roman Empire. And so they're expecting that when the Messiah comes, that he will usher in the kingdom. He will set things up right there. He'll overthrow the government. He'll take the throne. He'll bring Israel to their rightful place, his leading and ruling under him and with him. And that's their expectation. And that's, and you can understand if you think about it from their experience, why they would feel that way. If you know anything about the Roman empire, very heavy hand of oppression. They were brutal in the way that they operated, right? They say that there was peace during, throughout the Roman empire because anyone who said anything against the Roman empire was brutally killed publicly. And that tends to quell any type of rebellion real quick, but that's what they lived under. And so when Jesus starts to say that and he starts to talk about that now he's there to let the captives go free, that he's here to, to end the oppression and he starts to use this language that the prophet Isaiah has, a lot of people sitting in that crowd would probably be pretty excited about that. Okay, maybe it's time, right? This, this is going to be great. We've been wanting this for a long time. And I actually think that's kind of what's happening here. Because look at what it says in verse 22. He sits down. He says that today it's been fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? This is, this is Jesus from Nazareth, our guy. And listen to him. He's gracious and he's eloquent. And listen to the things he's saying. And people are kind of starting to get excited. But what Jesus is going to do here is what he's going to do all throughout his ministry. So often people are coming to Jesus with misunderstandings and he's quickly kind of turning it back and pointing it back to them. You know, whoa, whoa, you're missing it. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen here. Because there's talking about how gracious he is and these things. And Jesus is anticipating where they're going to go with this. He's anticipating that they're excited about this could be the revolution. That this could be real and immediate. And we've heard he's doing miracles and he's got these powers. And this could be the guy that does it. And Jesus anticipating all that. Look at what he says in verse 23. 
And he said to them, doubtless, you will say to me, the proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And so he says, you want to see the miracles. You've heard about me. You've heard what I'm doing. You're getting excited. As I tell you, the captives are going to go free. They're going, wow, listen to his words. He's right. John already told us John chapter two, Jesus knows what's in every man. He knows their thoughts. He knows exactly what they're thinking. He doesn't, he's not guessing. He knows exactly what they're thinking. He says, doubtless you're going to say, show us some signs. This will be great. But then he starts to tell this story. Verse 25, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was clean, cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. So what happened? Verse 22, they're marveling at his gracious words. Listen to Jesus. This is great. A few verses later, they're ready to run him out of town and kill him. So what happened? What did he say? What happened here between 22 to verse 28 and 29? And so if you know those stories, I want us to think about that together. Maybe you don't. It's okay. Two stories from the Old Testament that he talks about. One with the prophet Elijah and one with the prophet Elisha. Two prophets, divided kingdom of Israel, about 850 BC. So almost 800 to 900 years before Jesus, these prophets were operating. When the kingdom was divided in Israel, it was kind of flux and there was a lot of stuff going on. But in those two stories, if you go, you can read them in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings chapter 5. And so I'll just tell you real briefly what happens there. In 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah goes to this widow in Sidon and he comes to her and spends time with her. But what you see in that story, important background here to what he's talking about, she's not an Israelite. She's a widow that's a foreigner. And Elijah goes to her and spends time with her and God provides for her during this famine. And a lot happens there. We'll come back to that in a second. But then also he talks about Naaman the Syrian who had leprosy and how God heals Naaman through Elisha. And what we know about Naaman is he was a great military leader, had a lot of people underneath him who had leprosy. But he was a commander of the Syrian army, army, one of Israel's enemies. And so Jesus comes in and starts to talk about how he's here to set the captives free, to bring to light all these things that God has been promising through the prophets. And then he gives these two examples of people who are not even Israelites. And so I want you to think about the way the people are hearing the story. They live under the heavy oppression of Rome. They desperately want freedom. They desperately want the, the oppressor to be ousted. They desperately want to get rid of the horrible taxation and the oppression and all the things that they have. And when Jesus says he's going to bring freedom, they're like, great, let's see. It's time. Maybe he's the Messiah. He's doing miracles. Maybe this is the guy that can do it. And so then Jesus says, let me give you an example of what I'm going to do. And he has the audacity to talk about two foreigners and one who's one of their enemies. And they all go, what? Drive him out. 
Kill him. Throw him off the side of the hill. This can't be the Messiah. This can't be him. How could he say that? And they're furious at what Jesus says. So why is that so offensive? Why does Jesus telling two stories from the Bible, the inspired word of God, he just summarizes what happened and they're furious. Why is that the case? And so I want you to think about the example. What's similar about these two people, right? Like I said, both are not Israelites. That's, that's a big part of what's going on here in their, their response. But I want you to just think about the two people and their situation that they were in, right? So the story of the widow, Elijah goes, he meets this widow. He asks her if she has anything to drink, anything to eat. She says, come with me. You can come back to my house. And actually what she says to him is she says, I have enough at my house to make one loaf of bread. My son and I are going home and we're going to make that and we're going to eat it. And then we're going to die. And she's serious. This is not hyperbole. She's in the middle of a famine. She has nothing as poor as poor can be. She has nothing to her name. That's all she has. And Elijah goes back with her and he stays with her. And if you know that story, he stays with her and God continues to provide as he's there. Each day, there's just enough for them to eat. And he keeps walking with them and providing for them through that. But that's the first story that Jesus is referencing. But then the second story, if you know from 2 Kings about Naaman, he's not poor. He's actually a pretty wealthy guy. He's a well-respected military leader. He's a man of position and means and people look up to him and respect him. But he has leprosy. Leprosy was a big deal at that time. It made you an outcast in a lot of ways. And there were a lot of places you couldn't go and things you couldn't do and all kinds of difficulties that go with it. But this guy Naaman hears about Elisha and he hears that he's a prophet of God that lives in Israel and he knows the true God and he's done signs and wonders and he hears about it. And so he decides he's going to go and find this Elisha. Maybe he can heal him. And so he does. He goes to Israel and he finds Elisha and he comes in. And he goes to Elijah and Elisha doesn't even go out to meet him. He sends his messenger out to meet him. And he says, hey, yes, he knows who you are. He's heard your story. Go wash in the river Jordan seven times and you will be cleansed. And the guy is furious. I came all this way to see God's prophet and he doesn't even come out and talk to me and he doesn't meet me. He says, I want him to come out and raise his hand and wave his hand and pray to God and heal me on the spot. That's what I want to see. And he's so mad. Right? This is a guy of means. That's a guy of in power. He's used to people kind of doing what he wants. And Elijah sends his messenger and says, no, just go wash in the river. And so he's furious. And he says, oh, I could have washed in the water at home. Why did I come all this way? And one of his servants says to him, hey, this, if this is a man of God and we came all this way, maybe you should go wash in the water. Maybe he'll actually do what he said he's going to do. And so Naaman kind of, I, I picture him begrudgingly muttering down into the water and upset. And he washes seven times. And on the seventh time he comes up and his leprosy has gone. He's healed. And it's the story. And they want to go and, and pay Elijah and give him money and all this stuff because of what he did. And he's like, no, I don't, I don't want your stuff. I don't need it. And that's kind of the story of Naaman that you see. But here's the thing I want us to think about. Why, how are these two similar? One, one is really poor. And one is not, so it's not really that. They're both not Israelites. But what's similar in their circumstances and in their life? And I think with both of them, in both cases, they come to the end of themselves and they know that there's no way that they can fix their, their predicament that they're in. 
Either one of them. The woman's ready to die. She's got nothing. She's come to the place where she knows this is the end. The guy that's rich, even though he has a whole lot, there's nothing he can do about his leprosy. And so I want you to think for just a second what Jesus says from the very beginning of this. When he reads the prophet Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. What does that mean? I think the kingdom of God is good news to the poor, literally to the poor, the poor and the downtrodden, those that don't get justice, those that get run over, those that don't have anything and struggling to make ends meet. When Jesus's kingdom comes in full, it'll be good news. It'll be really good news. But I think he's also talking about what he will say over and over throughout his ministry, the poor in spirit. Naaman wasn't poor. Not, not monetarily. He had a whole lot of stuff, but he knew he was to the end of himself and he had to humble himself to receive the word of the Lord from Elijah to be healed. And I think what Jesus is saying in both of these is that my kingdom is coming, not in the way that you think it's coming. It's going to come through humility. It's going to come when you, when you come to the end of yourself, when you recognize that it's not something that you deserve, but it's by God's grace and God's grace alone. And so when he comes into that synagogue and they're expecting him to talk about a triumphant military leader, follow me, let's get rid of the bad people, the Romans. We're the good people and we'll take our rightful place and we'll get rid of the bad people and then everything will be all right. And Jesus comes in and goes, that's not the way the kingdom works. And they're furious. They're so angry. Because what Jesus is saying is radically humbling. I want you to remember when we started, the very beginning, John the Baptist comes proclaiming the kingdom before Jesus. He's making, uh, preparing the way. It's his his job. He's declaring that the time is now here, the kingdom has come, and then he turns and points to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But do you remember what John was saying? The kingdom is at hand, repent, turn from your ways and trust that God is now at work and he's about to do a work. And what he said over and over is don't you dare think that you're walking into this kingdom because you're Jewish by birth. It's not how this works. The only way it works is you transfer your trust from yourself to the savior of the world who has come. And John's, that's his message. That's what Jesus is saying here. You're expecting me to come in and fit your mold and I'm about to blow apart the way you think it works. And they get furious. So why is that so hard to hear? It takes humility. It takes an admission that you can't do it. It cuts to the heart of moral tribalism that my tribe is better than everybody else. Jesus blows that apart. And he goes, let me tell you the story of how God worked in the time of Elijah and Elisha. He worked with the the guy that was the commander of the Syrian army and he healed him. You're going to see the same thing as he goes. We actually saw it last week as he goes through Samaria and he spends time with the mortal enemy of the Jewish people and shares the good news with them and tells them who God is and what this looks like and how you come to him. But it's so hard to hear at different times because of the sinfulness of our heart. And so I want you to think about everything that Jesus was saying here, right? When he's 
when he's quoting this passage from Isaiah. He's going to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering the sight of the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed. All those things are coming in multiple ways, in multiple layers. Spiritually speaking, they come in Jesus' death and resurrection for all that would put their trust in him. We were given freedom from our sin. We were restored to a holy God. The blind see, right? That's, That's what the Bible tells us. Spiritually speaking, our eyes are open to see who Jesus is, even if we can't physically see. But there's multiple parts of this because when Jesus returns in glory and sets up the fullness of his kingdom, there will be no more poor. There will be no more blindness. There will be no more captives or injustice. And so all of this is coming in full. But what he's talking about right here at the beginning, that the fulfillment is now as he's talking about what he's going to do in his life and death and his resurrection. And so he's saying to them that it's going to come through me and what I do, but they don't like to hear that. We want you to overthrow the government right now. We want you to meet our, our physical need right in this moment. And we deserve that. And so oftentimes when we hear what the truth of the gospel is, it's radically humbling. It cuts to the very heart that we have to be humbled. But we slip into this thing that we're more deserving than maybe those people. That's what they were doing in that synagogue. What do you mean? What do you mean you're telling us about going to Naaman, the Syrian? You should be here saving us. And that's what we do. We all do that in our own heart at different times. It's the sinfulness of our heart. We like to think that we contribute to our salvation. I have a friend that likes to say, the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is your sin. Jesus does all the rest. Even the ability to believe is a gift of God. That it's all his doing. And we like to think that it's partly our doing. But the truth is grace is undeserved merit. Undeserved. And if we proclaim to say we are saved by grace through faith and what Christ has done, we're saying, I don't deserve this. And as soon as we start to compare and we start to look down at different people, pride is the enemy of receiving grace. Pride is the enemy of extending grace. Pride leads to judgment everywhere and understanding nowhere. And it's rampant in our world. And sadly, right now, it's the way that people who claim to be evangelical Christians are seen. It's the way that many people who claim to be evangelical Christians operate. It's a moral tribalism that's the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying here. And so when we pretend that we're the good people and those people over there are the bad people, we've missed it. And so what Jesus says as he walks in there is you're thinking it looks like this and it doesn't look like this. It looks like faith in what Jesus is going to do. And that's the only way this works. So how does that pertain to us today right now? I want you to think for just a second, you're sitting in that synagogue in the first century in Nazareth and you grew up there and your expectation 
is a Messiah that's going to overthrow the government. And Jesus comes in and he says all that. And then he starts talking about Naaman, the Syrian, and this foreigner that's a widow and all these people. How do you respond? I'm not going to point the finger at you, but I will talk about my own heart. In that culture and in that understanding, I probably would have been one of the people that's like, let's go throw him off the mountain. What's he talking about? Their sin is the same as our sin. It just looks a little different. But the sinfulness of their hearts, that they were ready to go do that and missing because of the, the, the pride in our own hearts. And we do the same thing at different times, even now as believers. We often fall into comparisons. Why do we compare ourselves to others? Make ourselves feel better. Yeah, I'm saved by grace. It's all God's doing. I can't contribute anything to my salvation, but I'm glad I'm not like that guy over there. God would have had to work really hard to save him. And we start to do, and I'm not, I'm not making light of that. We all do that at different times. It's easy to slip into that. It's easy to slip into this moralism that it's like, uh, that quickly turns to judgment. But the truth is, if we were there in that synagogue, I think we would have been just like those people. The sinfulness of our own hearts. We are all in desperate need of God's grace, moment by moment, day by day. And we get so locked into our culture and the way it thinks and those things overshadow. And it's easy to slip into that kind of thinking. And so I want you to go back to what I said at the very beginning. What's the problem of the world? How would you articulate that? That question gets asked of you. You get to articulate it. Well, actually it was. I, I read a story years ago, hundred years ago. Paper in London, England, asked that very question. What's wrong with the world? And they asked some of the great thinkers of the day, theologians and writers and different people to write in and tell what's wrong with the world. And all these people wrote these essays and all these things. And G.K. Chesterton, who's one of the great writers at the time, brilliant man, also happened to be a Christian. And he wrote into the paper to the question of what's wrong with the world. He wrote this, dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. And what he understood in humility is I am a desperate sinner. That the problem in the world is sin and I am a sinner. And I'm part of the problem and I desperately need the grace of God in my life. When we get to a place where it's judgment everywhere and understanding nowhere... And we somehow try to package that as being an evangelical Christian. We are doing the exact opposite of everything that Jesus called us to. Evangelical means good news. The good news that the God of the universe has come to do for us what we could never ever do for ourselves because we are hopelessly lost without him. And when you understand that truth, How can it be judgment everywhere? God is the one who judges and there will be judgment, but it's not for us to say. We have received the grace of God by what he has done and nothing else. 
And so you look around at the world and the problem that we see and the way people attack each other and the judgments that's there and they're wrong and pointing fingers and all those things. But when you understand who you are and what God has done for you in Jesus, that's got to go away. And every person you see is I know exactly what the problem here is because it's the same problem with me. And I know what the answer is here because it's Jesus and nothing else. And when we start to lose that, we are no longer salt and light in the world. If we lose that, close the doors and go home because we're wasting our time. It is only what Christ has done and nothing else. And Jesus is walking into that synagogue and what he's saying to those people is you have to humble yourself. Yes, the captives are going to go free. Yes, you're going to be able to see, but it's going to be because of what I do for you. And it's not overthrowing governments. It's not ousting the king. It's I'm going to defeat sin and death on your behalf. Yes, you're a sinner and I'm going to take it for you and I'm going to bring it to nothing that you can be brought into my kingdom. And as soon as we forget that, which we do, we all do. We forget it daily, but that's why we need one another. That's why we need to dwell richly in God's word day after day after day. That's why we need to speak the truth to one another. We need to good news one another, even as believers. Be reminded over and over of what God has done for us in Jesus. It's the only answer to all the things that we see. I hate to say it, but right now in our country, I don't want to be known as an evangelical Christian because of what it means. I want to be known as a gospel-centered Christian who loves Jesus more than anything else and operates in radical humility because I know who I am and I know who God is and it's all his doing. Let us be people like that for God's glory. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you have saved us by no doing of our own, but it's by your grace to us. We pray that when we miss that, when we start to think that it's our doing, when we start to point fingers, when we start to not love the people in front of us, would you remind us of our standing before you as completely by grace? Would you do this work in us that we can extend the grace that we have received from you to any and all people that we see, that we would continue to speak the truth of your gospel to those around us. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.